We're a part of the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina, along with 4,500 other churches. We have a newspaper called the Biblical Recorder. Back in December, a study was published on the topic of infidelity and porn, pornography, being prevalent in the church. The study was titled Sexuality in the Church. It was commissioned by the Brushfires Foundation. It was a nationwide survey. And uh, the reports are uh, different issues of sexual sin brought to pastors from both staff members and church members. I've put a warning label in the bulletin in the news brief the last couple of weeks. Uh, this is not a necessarily an easy message, but I believe a necessary message and a biblical message. You can reserve your amen until later, or you can give an old me, either way. However, uh, issues of sin brought to pastors from staff members and church members, according to this survey, include the following. Marital infidelity, premarital sex, sexual problems within marriage, lust, pornography use by a husband, sexual abuse, sexual assault, porn use by a teenager, sex offender issues, sex education questions, pornography use by an unmarried adult, struggles with same-sex attraction, sexting, transgenderism, gender dysphobia, masturbation, same-sex parenting, pornography use by a child under 12, erotica, written pornography, and pornography use by a wife. These are issues brought to pastors from within the church across America. These issues are present in every church. These issues are present in this church. There's a ministry called Enough is Enough, and their goal is to uh, make the Internet safe. Good luck with that, right? We'll pray for you. Here are some of the findings. The church body is not immune from the gross consumption of pornography, contrary to what many believe. Pornography is prevalent in the church. Internet pornography consumption is at an all-time high, fueling pornography addiction, sexual exploitation, and the breakdown of marriage in and out of the church. They go on to say that pornographers understand the content they produce and distribute is highly addictive, and they will likely have a consumer for life unless the addiction cycle is broken. I'm going to go ahead and tell you now that at the end of the service, I'm going to ask that we have a congregational prayer for sexual purity. Would you, would you be willing to join me in that at the end of the service? I'm going to ask, you can be thinking now, I'm going to ask people to come forward. Not because you necessarily have an issue, but because you're going to pray for the topic in the church, out of the church, and in our culture. We're going to pray for God to intervene and for God to give us a call and a desire and a pursuit of sexual purity. You can come kneel at the altar. You can sit in the front pew. You can come stand around the altar. Just know now that's coming at the end of the service. In John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, Jesus was confronted with sexual immorality. And he dealt with it as he was being tested by the very religious leaders that should have embraced him. John chapter 8 is our next chapter as we're looking at the series of messages I'm calling Jesus Is. Today we're talking about Jesus is the one who removes condemnation from us. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? He removes condemnation for all those who are guilty and come to him in faith. John chapter 8 verses 2 through 11 may have looked 
something like this if you watch the screen. Early the next morning, he went back to the temple. All the people gathered round him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher! This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him. But he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened up. Whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left, one by one, the older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened up. Where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir. Well then, I do not condemn you either. John chapter 8, Jesus continues to reveal himself as Messiah. He continues to teach the people the truth of God's word and the truth about who he was coming into the world. But he also continued to face testing and uh, temptation by the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and those that would do him harm and would not believe in him. But the reality is that Jesus Christ came into the world to set us free from the condemnation of sin. I'm going to say that again because I know you want to say amen to that. Jesus Christ came into the world to set us free from the condemnation of sin. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this topic is not one I'm excited about standing up in church and talking about today, but 
It's biblical, and it's truthful, and it's needful. And so I pray, Lord, today that you would honor the reading and teaching of your word, that you would give us your Holy Spirit to bring uh, an encouragement to our hearts and a conviction in our hearts and a desire to do that which is right in your sight, knowing that anything we're called to turn away from and anything we're called to turn to by your word and by your spirit is to, for our good, for our blessing, and for your glory. And so we joyfully go forward now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's talk today about what this means, what this story means. Uh, you'll notice in your outline there on your listening guide, there are several, uh, several points I'd like to make. One of them is that the reality of sexual sin is a call for us to spend time with Jesus. The reality of the fact that we live in a day and a time and a culture where sexuality is so blatant on uh, media, on television, in music, and, and in culture itself, uh, it, it's a call for us to spend time with Jesus. Now, here's what we need to know about Jesus. Jesus is the teacher of truth. Jesus is the teacher of truth. And teaching involves three things. It, first of all, involves imparting by the authority, imparting of knowledge. Secondly, it involves the learning of knowledge. And thirdly, it involves the applying of truth to our life. If we don't go to the authority to listen, then we become ignorant. If we listen but don't act, then we become disobedient and, and negligent. So we want to be careful to recognize that Jesus is the teacher of truth. In verse number 2, it says, All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. As we saw in the video, he, he sat down and taught the people as they gathered around him there at the temple. And I would point out to you today that growing Christians are those who spend time with Jesus learning and applying the truth. If you and I are going to be growing Christians, we have to spend time with Jesus. Have to spend time with Jesus. Must spend time with Jesus learning the truth and applying the truth. What does that look like? Well, on a personal level, very generally, it means that we're going to take the Bible, God's Word, and we're going to learn it. We're going to read it. We're going to think about it. We're going to write it down. We're going to meditate on it. We're going to find some verses that we can memorize. We're going to find some, some lessons that we can learn. And then we're going to apply those lessons in our lives, in our business, in our home, in our marriage, with our kids, with our money, with everything about who we are. We're going to take what we learn from the Master and apply it. And then as a church, what does it mean? If we're going to be a church that is growing in our relationship with Christ, we're going to, we're going to take the word grow, as we talked about last fall, G-R-O-W, G, we gather together, R, we renew our minds by learning about God's word, O, we observe or obey what the word says, and W, we come together and worship him in spirit and truth. You, tell, you show me some Christians that are learning personally, and you show me a church that is growing together uh, under the Lordship of Christ, and I'll show you those that are committed and growing in their faith. I'll also point out that in our story today, if the Pharisees had spent more time with Jesus, learning and applying the truth, they may have recognized him as the Messiah, and they definitely would not have come at him with testing and temptation and, and leading to the cross. The Pharisees. We think about the Pharisees. There's no way they would ever trust and believe Jesus and recognize him as the Messiah. They're, they're the bad guys, right? But there's one Pharisee 
that most likely was different than the other ones. His name was Nicodemus. You've heard of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's the one that came to Jesus at night asking him questions because he recognized that he was a teacher sent from God. In John chapter 7, Nicodemus again is on the scene and he speaks to the Pharisees and the chief priests and he says that you need to hear and investigate before you make a determination about Jesus. You need to listen to him. You need to learn from him. Then in John chapter 19, it's Nicodemus that brings the embalming ointment for the body of Jesus after he's taken down from the cross. Does that mean Nicodemus became a disciple and a follower? It doesn't say it explicitly, but it certainly implies it in the text that he was willing to put his reputation on the line to go and be a part of the ministry of Jesus. Also would point this out. If this woman who had been caught in adultery had spent more time with Jesus, learning and applying the truth, then most likely she would not have been involved in this sexual immoral relationship and this public exposure. She may even have come to faith in Christ and may even have later on. There's just not a record of it in the Gospel of John. I also would point this out that if Christians today, you and I, if Christians today will spend time with Jesus learning and applying the truth, then what will happen is we will be equipped with knowledge. We will be equipped with what we need to apply God's Word to our lives, empowered by His Spirit to go out and make a difference in the world for Christ. Truth, as Jesus taught it, is often tested. We see the Pharisees testing Jesus in our story today in, in John chapter 8. But all throughout history, even today, truth is tested often in hostile ways. And when truth is tested, it simply identifies those who are disciples and those who are deceivers. This past week, there's some hoopla concerning our vice president. Uh, ChristianHeadlines.com, along with many other news sources, had this story. After news broke that Vice President Pence's wife, Karen, would be working for a private Christian school with the belief that marriage is between one man and one woman, Lady Gaga, y'all know who Lady Gaga is, right? Okay, Lady Gaga criticized Pence during a concert in Las Vegas. She said, quote, You say we should not discriminate against Christianity. You are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. Then she said, I am a Christian woman. And what I do know about Christianity is that, quote, we bear no prejudice and everybody is welcome. Now, let me say something about that. She said, we bear no prejudice and everybody is welcome. She is correct. She's correct. We bear no prejudice. Everybody is welcome in the family of God. Did you know that? She is correct. However, she is incomplete. The rest of the story goes like this, as Max Licato says. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants you to become just like Jesus. Franklin Graham said this about the whole scenario with Lady Gaga. He said, following Christ means following the Bible. The Bible makes it clear that sin has a cost. We are to live our lives in obedience to his word. He set the rules, not us. He's the one who defines sin, not us. And out of His love and mercy, He provided a remedy for sin, all sin, through repentance and faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. I think that's a great response. CNN, two days ago, had this headline. Christianity's future looks more like Lady Gaga than Mike Pence. 
You think about what they're saying out in culture, that the future of our faith, it's not just that they're pushing our faith down, they're redefining our faith in our very face. Verses 3 through 6 of our passage in John 8 says this, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. In the day of Jesus, they said this, they, they brought all this up, and they said, now what are you going to do about it? In the same way today, that, that we're facing the same circumstances. The same sexual immorality being thrown in our faces and, and we're asked the question, what are you going to do about it? There is a motive to test and to force into a dilemma that we might somehow be caught in a trap. Now for Jesus, it was simply this. If Jesus said to set her free, he himself would have been violating the law of God as defined in Leviticus 20 and verse number 10. And he could not violate the law. If he had said, stone her, then he would have set himself against the very purpose for his, his reason for being in the world, to be the savior of sin. What a dilemma. If he said, set her free, he's, he's guilty. If he said, stone her, then he's guilty. What he said was exactly what God would say. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. When Jesus said that, several things were true. On one hand, he upheld the law. The law says stone. The law says to punish. So he said, okay, uphold the law. He also revealed sin. In the life of every person there, from the oldest to the youngest, as they contemplated, now the tide, the table being turned on them. If I'm without sin, I can do the stoning. And I can cast the first stone. I can be the one to, 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 to execute judgment, but only if I myself don't deserve it. <laughs> So from the oldest to the youngest, they all walked away, including the Pharisees. Because there's none of us who is without sin. It also demonstrated grace. Aren't you thankful for grace? Man, I'm thankful. And it revealed Jesus as the Messiah. Secondly, I want you to notice today that the reality of sexual sin is a call for us to deal with sexual sin ourselves and, for, and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Because I realize in reading the, 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 the issues at the beginning of the message today from this survey from churches. This is not a survey out in the, in the community. This is a survey within churches. It's time for us, you and I, as we deal and confront and are tempted and tested and give in to sexual sin and immorality. This is a call for us within the church to find the grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers for us. What that means is this, there's no earthly condemnation. All the accusers in the story have left. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to the woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Earthly condemnation has disappeared because there is none who is without sin. Those who picked up rocks to stone this woman were left. Because they were able to say, like I'm able to say, like you're able to say, who am I to qualify to execute judgment on somebody else when I myself am not spotless and pure? You ever heard that phrase, uh, people who live in glass houses should not throw stones? You ever heard that? 
Or if you hadn't heard it, you just heard it now. I looked it up in the dictionary. What does this phrase mean? And in the Cambridge Dictionary, it says, this means that you should not criticize other people for bad qualities in their character when you have the same qualities yourself. So who am I to throw a rock at anybody? When we do that, when we throw stones, so to speak, it gives Christians a bad testimony at the very point that should be our best testimony, our most vocal testimony. Our testimony is not, should not be to pick up a rock and stone somebody who's going through a moral dilemma. It should be to put the stone down and to say to them, Jesus has forgiven me and he offers the same forgiveness to you. That's the testimony. No earthly condemnation, but also this means there's no heavenly condemnation. Jesus said to this woman in verse 11, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus said to the woman, Jesus says to us, when we turn from our sins and come to him in faith, Jesus says to us, neither do I, heaven, Jesus, God, neither do I condemn you. That's me. And that's you. Jesus had already said in John 5, 24, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Did you hear that? Has not come into judgment. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, one of the great Bible passages uh, throughout Scripture, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see the words on the screen? Read them with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would anybody say amen to that? Well, see, we're all guilty. And when we know Jesus, we have gone from condemnation to no condemnation at all. There, 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 there were, it also means this. No more sinful pursuit. No more sinful pursuit. This is where many people get snagged up. Because they want the forgiveness, but they also want to continue the behavior. And notice here, the first step, there's no earthly condemnation. Secondly, no heavenly condemnation. But thirdly, there's no more sinful pursuit. Jesus said to the woman, verse 11, Go, and from now on, sin no more. Leave this lifestyle. Leave this practice. Leave this ongoing committing of sin. You've got to leave it behind you because you've been set free, and it no longer defines who you are. That's where many people get snagged up. The, the, the Christians in Rome got snagged up on this too. Can I say snagged up, Al? Is that okay? They got snagged up. Today, okay, today only. <laughs> Romans chapter 6, uh, in Romans, they, they, they were, they, there was this mentality going around that, that we've been forgiven of sin. And because we've been forgiven of sin, it shows how great God's grace is. So, if we keep sinning really bad and a whole lot more, it'll show how great God's grace is. Let's go out and sin all we want to, and people will say, look at how great God's grace is. He even forgives that stuff. And they keep doing it and keep doing it. Well, Paul said, asked him this question, Romans chapter 6. He said, what shall we say? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Should we keep doing all these things that, that the Bible says that we should not do in order to demonstrate the grace of God? And then he says this in verse 2, God forbid, no! We don't continue in sin. We cease from our sinful ways because we have been set free from those. Isn't that exciting to know? We have been set free. And when we've been set free, there are two things that mark us as believers. One is repentance. We turn from that lifestyle. And the second is the empowerment of God's Word and His Spirit to live the life He's called us to live. That's the testimony. Well, this woman had been caught in 
adultery. There are at least three types of adultery. You may want to add to the list at least three. One is physical adultery. We all know what that is. That's when, that's when you have sexual relations with someone outside of marriage. It violates God's word. The Ten Commandments, commandment number six in Exodus twenty fourteen says, you shall not commit adultery. Physically commit adultery. But then there's what's called emotional adultery. This is a little more complicated, but it's very true, very real. It's when you transfer information, thoughts, and emotions that should be kept between you and your spouse to someone who is not your spouse, leading to emotional and physical distance from your spouse. From this article I got from a Christian website, I believe, it's called Why Women Cheat. Here's what it says. Kevin is my work husband. We've never done anything physical, but we have lunch and take a walk together almost every day. I really look forward to seeing him. And I've started trying to dress nicer for work. I'm honestly not sure if I'm crossing the line into an emotional affair. I do think my husband will be uncomfortable, and I do hide the fact that Kevin and I text each other at night. It feels emotionally blurry, I guess, but I don't want to stop. Is that an emotional affair? <laughs> yeah, it is. Then there's visual adultery. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27, 28, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery physically, but I say if, if you look at a woman with a lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So therefore he's saying to every guy out there, you are guilty. Let me rephrase that. We are guilty. <laughs> We're all guilty. Let's look at the third point of what this means quickly. The reality of sexual sin is a call to put down our rocks and get on our knees. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. First of all, if you're not spiritual at the moment, you have no business trying to restore anybody. Amen? Make sure your walk is right before you make an attempt to correct anybody else. And when you correct another believer, when you correct, correct someone else, notice the word that characterizes our correction. It's not that we don't correct, but as we correct, how do we correct? With what? Gentleness. With gentleness. As Christians, we often find ourselves in a position that we're confronted with behavior that violates Scripture, especially sexual behavior that is all over our culture. But we have to be mindful and not yield to the temptation to be holier than thou and go about attacking people for their behavior. That's what the Pharisees were doing, and that's how they were trying to tempt and test and try Jesus. And while we don't pick up spirit, uh, physical rocks and stone people today, our verbal attacks, our, our, our attitudes, a uh, demeanor that says you're not welcome and, and, and I'm against you and oppose you, those things can be just as damaging as a physical rock. Well, what do we do? What are we to do as believers and followers of Christ? On one hand, we must not, and I mean that, must not condone and bless that which God calls sin. We must not condone and bless what God calls sin. There are people that do that in the name of Christianity. There are churches and denominations that have done that in the name of Christianity, but we must not do that because the Scripture will not allow us to do it. We also must not be condemning towards people who participate in such activities. If there's any judging and any condemning to take place, Jesus is going to take care of it. And we can trust Jesus to take care of any judging and condemning that needs to take place. Can't we do that? We can trust Him. 
In John 5.22, Jesus said, The Father has given all judgment to the Son. So if you and I start acting all judgmental and condemning, we're taking the place that only belongs to Jesus. What can we do? We can do several things. We can pray for people. Prayer works. Amen? Prayer works. We can talk to people. It's okay to talk to people. We can listen to people. Find out their story. It's okay to make a friend out of somebody who's acting in an immoral way. Because in the course of friendship and discussion and demonstration of love, that's where change takes place. It's rare that change takes place because somebody is hollering at them across the street or across the cubicle in the office or over the phone. We can share our own story of grace and forgiveness. We can keep the doors open. Let me really scare you. We can invite them to come to Ridgecrest Baptist Church. And when they do, we can be glad to see them. Can I get an amen to that? They might thank us. They might reject us. They might put us off. They might ridicule us. They might condemn us. They might say, who do you think you are to tell me what's right and what's wrong for me? They might say, and I quote, you are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. But we must let any offense be our message and not our role as a messenger. In 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, about the gospel, it says, The gospel is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. There's a stumbling. There's an offense to the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is this. Listen, you and I are sinners in the, fa in, the, in the face of a holy and righteous God, and we are under condemnation for our sins. That's the message that we preach. That's an offensive message, but that's the message. And the, the wonderful part of the message is that that's where we are, but that's not where we have to stay, because God loved us so much, He gave us a way out. That's the message that we preach. Our open condemnation only puts people at odds instead of building a bridge and opening a door for conversation and potential, uh, uh, potential inroads that we can make. Galatians 6.1 ends with this phrase, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. As we seek to restore people with a spirit of gentleness because we are spiritual ourselves, we have to be mindful that we don't give in to temptation. The temptation to condemn and the temptation to participate in that kind of lifestyle. Focus on the family puts out some warning signs of potential affairs. And that includes conversations about things that should be kept between you and your spouse. You look for excuses to say or talk to another person. There's flirting or sexual tension between you and someone else. And you look for legal ways to touch them like helping them put on a coat. Protect your marriage if you're married. Avoid entertainment that increases tolerance of immorality. Try to see your relationship from your spouse's perspective. How would you feel if your spouse were acting in the way that you're acting? Don't flirt. Most affairs begin with what's considered innocent flirting, but there's no such thing. Work to meet the needs of your spouse, and if you don't know them, ask. Grow together spiritually. Set boundaries for how you'll act with members of the opposite sex. As you leave today, our ushers are going to have two handouts available I've put together.
One is called Guidelines for Sexual Purity. On the inside is a list of do's and don'ts and things to do and things to consider. The other is called Flee, F-L-E-E. -E. I don't have time to go into those now. Take these home. Look over them yourself. Look over them and use it for a discussion topic with your husband, your wife, your kids, your neighbors, yourself, your coworkers. Use it for God's glory that our marriages and lives might be kept uh, pure. Al's going to come up now, and we're going to end our service with that call to prayer. And then uh, time is running a little short, but I don't want this time here to run short. Al's going to sing. He's going to sing the first verse in the chorus of that song, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. And while he's singing, if you feel so inclined, I want to invite you to come and gather here around the altar. It might be to, to pray for our culture as a whole. We're so sexually saturated and it's so embedded in, in, in the lives of our families and young people uh, that, that the message of the gospel, the, the standards of Scripture are being thrown out left and right. You may want to come and just pray for our culture. You may want to come and pray for a husband or a wife that's struggling with some area of sexual temptation or, or, or usage of pornography. You may want to come and pray for yourself and temptations you're facing or things that you're dealing with. You may want to come and pray for your children or somebody else's children or your grandchildren or the schools right down the street in our community. You might want to pray for any area like this. You may want to stay right where you are. There's no pressure either way. But in just a moment, when Al sings, that's your time to come forward and gather. He's going to pause and I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're just going to wrap up in a song. Our service will be concluded. When our service concludes, Al and Gene are going to be available. Rodney and Gail are going to be available. I would love to be available. I have to slip out to the other worship service. But, but they'll be available if you'd like to speak to them now while you're here. Or if you want to contact any of us on our staff at any time concerning this, we're all up to speed, so to speak. And we'll be glad to talk, pray, counsel, and share resources. This is a very real issue in our culture. Don't you agree with that? God gives us hope. Let's stand together. As Al sings, if you feel inclined, you come down here to the front and join us, and then we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the beautiful gift of sex and for the guidelines that you give us for its use. We pray, our Heavenly Father, today that you would bring upon us the conviction of sin for any area that hinders us and disrupts our relationship with you and that breaks down both our lives and our marriages. May we confess our guilt. May we repent. 
We pray, our Heavenly Father, you would empower us to overcome the strong allure of sexual sin that is in our culture. But Lord, if we're honest, it's also in our own hearts. We pray, our Heavenly Father, today that you would break the cycle that perpetuates this sin among so many in our culture, in our families, in our homes, in our schools. We pray, O oh God, that you would restore our purity. Restore us, Lord. We pray, O oh God, today that in this worship center in, and in our other worship service today, as well as in our culture, that people may be inclined to seek you so that healing might come to marriages. We pray and ask, Lord, you would protect those in singleness, that you would guard our young. Help us, Lord, we pray, to keep watch, to keep watch that we might not fall into temptation. We pray, Lord, you'd protect our testimony. That when we stand for Jesus out in the community, that, that Lord, it might not be with a, with a blemish upon us, but with a testimony that we've been set free because of Jesus. We pray, Lord, you'd lead us away from our sinful condition. We pray, Lord, we'd follow the words of John, chapter, 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9, knowing that as we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for that. May our heart's desire, our heart's desire today and always, may it be to glorify you in sexual purity and in every area of life. As we pray... We ask this in all things, in Jesus' name, amen.